Good morning, Grace. Wow. It's like Darth Vader coming out of this stage. I am your father. If you're new with us today, uh, we don't normally do Star Wars type renditions like that, so you're safe. But we started a new series last week uh, titled Just Lead. And this series has taken us through the book of 1 Samuel. And the title comes from the fact that uh, life involves triumphs, tragedies, and transitions. And learning to lead is not so much about how prominent you are or how many people you have following you. It's learning to live through the tragedies, triumphs, and transitions that every single one of us will face. And whether you have a lot of people around you that you're leading, or a few, or it's seemingly even none, even to lead yourself in a proper way through those things in life is learning how to lead yourself through transitions, triumphs, and tragedies. And that's what we're going to see in this book in a lot of different ways. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. If in your worship guide, there's a spot for you to take some notes, uh, as well as the passages we'll be looking at, the page number. Uh, I'd encourage you, if you're new to the Bible, to grab one of the hardcover Bibles. That page number will take you to it. And follow along there, as well as uh, the verses that we have up on the slides as we go through those as well. Let's pray, and we'll jump into our message today. Father, thank you so much for your word and the blessing of singing those truths, Lord, and how they encourage our hearts when we take for a moment our focus off our life and, and everything that we might be uh, swirling around in our hearts, and we just... Focus it on you for a moment and remember who you are and what you've done in our lives. And, and Lord, that's really what First Samuel is all about. It's a number of different people in a variety of circumstances and only one thing made a difference in terms of how they faced transitions or tragedies or triumphs in their life. It's where their eyes were focused in the midst of them, where their hope was when each of these types of scenarios came into their life. So Lord, our prayer is, is for us to learn from these stories that your word says you have, have preserved for us so that we might learn from those who have gone before us and we might trust you and follow you and praise you all the more as your people. Ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Where you place your hope in times of hopelessness, will make or break you as a leader. That's really what we saw last week in a nutshell. And I want to just revisit it because our, our story today, our praise today, this poem that we're going to look at today, written by Hannah, is the outworking of what we talked about last week. And if you're new, we, we looked at a story about uh, two women, really, because we're in a narrative, and in narrative stories or narrative parts of the Bible, authors use the same kinds of things that we see today. They use comparison and contrast of characters as one of the elements that helps them draw out the principles that they want us to see. And in this first chapter, we saw two women compared. Now, both of them were the wives of the same husband. That's another story for another time. We're not going to touch on that today. We're not promoting that, nor does the Bible promote that. But I want you to understand that in their day, in the days of Hannah and Peninnah, the other wife, 
Childbearing for a woman was one of the most significant things, if not the most significant thing, that they brought and contributed to the family. Because in an agricultural community, children were workers. And workers made your family prosperous. They allowed you to hand down your property to uh, heirs. And they were carers for you as you aged. So those were huge contributions. And in their day and age, a woman's value and her, you know, Respect within the community and within her family was based on the number of children she could provide in her family. And if you know the story, Peninnah had many children, sons and daughters, the text tells us, many sons, many daughters, and Hannah had been barren. And her barrenness had probably gone on for years. Hannah was the first wife, and probably the reason a second wife was brought in uh, was not because anyone wants to be married to two wives, trust me. I'm joking. No one wants to be married to two spouses, period, right? If you have one spouse right now, you know how challenging that can be. No one wants two unless you absolutely need to have them both. And in this case, they felt it was necessary. I'm not saying it was, but Hannah obviously went a few years before they found out she was barren. He marries another wife, and the text tells us she had several sons and several daughters before we come to the story that we saw last week, which means for years, multiple years, Hannah probably went through the turmoil that she experienced over and over thinking she was useless and had no contribution, no value because of her state. But what we saw and what's important for us to realize is is the only worst place that Hannah could have possibly been in, having put all of her hope and all of her value in having kids, the only worst state she could have been in than not having kids was having her hope in her children and having a bunch of children. You see, that's the only difference between Peninnah and Hannah was that one had children and one didn't. But both of them placed all their hope in their kids. And it made Peninnah arrogant and caused her to torment and look down on Hannah because of it. And it made Hannah bitter, greatly anxious, weep, not being able to celebrate all that God had given her and even particular what he had provided for her and them as a nation and a people. Both of them worshiped their children. And from the story, one thing we learn is that Hannah's state of not having children was actually a better place than Peninnah's. Because you ever notice, we don't ever hear of Peninnah again in the whole of scriptures. She just disappears. But the barrenness that the Lord caused in Hannah brought her to a place in her life where she no longer worshipped children and began to put her hope in God. That may have never happened for Peninnah. You see, the only thing worse than worshiping something in this world and never being able to get it is worshiping something in this world and actually getting it. Because that state will leave you prideful, arrogant, and self-satisfied. And that's the type of person that will never place their hope in God. So what I want you to see today is, is what happened in Hannah's life when the Lord answered her prayer for a child and how, as we saw last week, she was transformed to trust him 
for a child. Here's my overarching point, and this is why I'm connecting the two chapters, because they really go together. What we're going to read today springs right out of yesterday's or last week's story. So here's my first point for you right in your notes, is my humble trust in God, which is what Hannah ended up with, results in transformational worship of God. My humble trust in God results in transformational worship of God. So read with me as we read through this psalm, this psalm, psalm, right? Why do they spell it that way? You're all wondering the same thing, right? This psalm of praise that Hannah comes right after. If you remember, if you were here last week, remember they presented, she gives birth to Eli, or excuse me, not Eli, to Samuel, and, and then she presents Samuel to Eli to serve in the temple the remainder of his life which is amazing because the very thing she had originally longed for forever, she would have clung to. All the things that society said a child should bring, especially for a mom, should give her prestige in her community, should make her husband proud of her, bring a provider into the family, and the emotional connection that every mom has with a child, all those things were things that she would go without from this child. So even though she received a child, The only value she got from it was the fact that this child would serve the Lord for the rest of his life. In fact, the story will tell us Hannah would see her son maybe once a year. That was it. So this was a true transformation. It wasn't one of those, oh, yeah, you just, you know, told God, I'll give them to you if, if you give me what I want. She wasn't getting what she ultimately wanted. She was getting something much, much better. And this is how she responds and prays in this psalm. And here's three things I want you to see. Maybe you can pick them out as we go. We're gonna spend some time looking at all three of these. In this poem of praise, we're gonna see the power behind Hannah's triumph because we saw her in tragedy yesterday or last week. We're gonna see her in triumph. Now we're gonna see the power behind her triumph. We're gonna see the pattern of God's triumph. And then we're gonna see the person of God's triumph. Okay, so the power behind Hannah's triumph the pattern of God's triumph and the person behind God's triumph. So read with me as you will. You go through this. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. And the horn is like an animal's horn. It was just a symbol of strength. So you can substitute the word strength there and you'll basically get what that means. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. Why? Because I rejoice in your salvation. I love the Hebrew is so picturesque, but the word there for derides is probably not a great translation. The word itself means uh, is wide from end to end, meaning her mouth was wide from end to end over, it was in a sense wider than her enemies is pictorially what he's saying. And it wasn't that she was, she was slandering her enemies. That's not the picture I think that the Hebrew writer is trying to say. What he's saying is that her mouth is wider than her enemies. Why? Well, he tells us, because I do what? I rejoice. This isn't even part of my message, but this may be the best thing you can take from this. Instead of deriding your enemies when you get what you want, you know how you get back at your enemies? Your mouth is so wide with praise for God, it just drowns out their negativity. Remember what Hannah was dealing with prior to this? Peninnah right there in her ear. I got three sons. I got four daughters. Look at my sons. Look at my daughters. Look at the portions I get. Look at how much they bring to the family. What are you doing? Oh, nothing. You don't bring anything to the family. That's all she heard, wasn't it? 
And now, because her focus wasn't so much on what she didn't have in her kids, and it was on God, her mouth was so big, the Hebrew author is saying, with praise, that she can't even hear Peninnah, and, you know, nipping away at the inside. So if you get nothing out of this message, take that. That's just a freebie. I'm not going to charge you a thing for that one. It's just right there. It's just there for the picking. Going on, it says, There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Notice all the contrasts here that we're going to get into. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Why? For the pillars of the Lord excuse me, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, again, the strength of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home, it said, to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So this is right after they presented him. Three things I want you to see in here. The power behind Hannah's triumph, the pattern of God's triumph, and the person of God's triumph. The first is the power. Here's your first point. is My strength comes from the person of God, not my circumstances. My strength comes from the person of God, not my circumstances. Look at what Hannah says in here. He says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Even in her mouth widening, it's because it's filled with praise to the Lord, not because she suddenly has a child and now she can rub it into Peninnah's face. No, she's so overjoyed with who God is and so praising him that she can't even hear the derogatory comments anymore. And look at what she pulls out here. She pulls out four things that she talks about in here not her circumstances she's not writing a song about how beautiful her child is and oh he is the most fairest of all children notice he does she doesn't even mention the child because she's so enamored with the gift giver she's not even looking at the gift and she says three things in particular about him no one is holy like the lord there is no one like the lord he is unique in verse two there's no rock like our God. The rock was that symbol of strength. He was her strength. His holiness, his uniqueness is what her heart and her hope was in more than a child. He says, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. He knows all things and she recognized that. All the stuff that was being shouted into her ear by Peninnah about her worthlessness as a woman and everything that society was saying to her, she was realizing, you know what? What do you people know? You're going to be here one day, and you're going to be gone the next. But God knows the beginning from the end. And he says, by him, actions are weighed. You see all these 
statements about who God is and what she's exalting in, she was finding her strength in the Lord, not in herself. You see, the problem with us as as humans, and this is all of us, uh, is our pride results in two common scenarios. The first is Hannah's scenario that we saw uh, and not being able to have a child. And when we can't get what we really want, what we think will give us identity or, or make us popular or make us significant, we end up like Hannah. We're full of grief. We're greatly anxious. We're bitter. We're angry at everything around us. We have no joy even in the presence of the Lord because what we really want, we can't get. You see, there's two sides to the coin of pride. One is the boastful side, like Peninnah. She, we, we knew what she worshipped because she was boasting constantly about her children and everything that she brought to the family. It was real obvious that that's what we, she worshipped. And since she had it, it made her prideful and boastful. But what we also often don't see is that Hannah was worshipping the exact same thing. She was worshipping children. She was worshipping what the world says was important, just like Peninnah was. But since she didn't have any children, it just expressed itself in self-pity. You know what self-pity ultimately is? It's the worst type of pride because it's a hidden pride. It's a pride that, that doesn't boast because it has nothing to boast about. It's a pride that wallows and ruminates inside here and says, you know what? I deserve better than this. That's pride. Whether it's boasting in what you have or wallowing in what you don't have, both are pride. So Peninnah and Hannah were both in the worst state. But the beauty of this and the grace of God is that in God's grace, he didn't give Hannah what she wanted to worship and it led to her being broken to the point where she finally could worship and would worship the only thing that would truly satisfy her. You see, sometimes we get so angry at God for not giving us what we really want in this world. And one of the things that the story of Peninnah and Hannah teach us is that getting what you really want in this world is often the worst thing that could ever happen to you. I mean, just just an observation. Anyone ever heard of Peninnah anywhere else in the scriptures after this point? No. No. Her life, at least in God's eyes, doesn't even get recorded after this. Her sons, daughters, we have no idea what happens to them. Hannah, on the other hand, in her brokenness and in that transformation, that painful transformation, goes on to give birth to a child who would change the face of Israel in this season. And not only that, she would write a poem that would be quoted by another young woman that most of us probably have never heard of. Her name was Mary. Uh, She actually quotes and uses parts of this same psalm after she learns that she's carrying Jesus. That's not a bad genealogy, huh? So we see that. But in order to see where her hope was, her power was, she had to have a perspective that was based on the, the pattern of God's triumph, 
not just the person of God. She put her hope in the person of God, but this next part of this psalm that she wrote, we're going to see why she could have that hope in this person. One, he was powerful, but she also had her eyes open to the pattern of how God's triumphs work, how things in life are going to come about when God's in control. So here's your second point, is my perspective comes from the pattern of God, not the world. If we're going to be involved in transformational worship, it means first that our strength must come from the person of God, but secondly, our perspective must come from the pattern of God, not the pattern of this world that we live in. Starting in verse four, I, I kind of pointed these out to you, but if you're a Bible marker, I always like to write or mark the word but in the Bible. I've told you this, that's one of my favorite words in the Bible is but. I've always wanted to do a series called the big old butts of the Bible, but maybe next semester we'll do that one. I always look for butts in the Bible. It's the one time you can look at butts and not get in trouble, all right? The bad joke, but I'm trying to get you to I'm trying to get you to focus on this. Whatever I got to do, that's what teachers do, is get you to focus on these key words, all right? So look at what we see, these contrasts in these passages. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And then he tells us why. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. This is a beautiful picture of, of sovereignty. You see, if the foundation, that's what pillars would have been there, that's how they viewed it. Pillars were the foundation of something. If God owns the pillars and he set the world on them, and he, in a sense the picture is he's got these pillars, then it's like, remember those games you used to play when you were a kid that had all those little metal balls in them and you had to move them into the little dimples and get them all in there? That's the picture that this is, is you get them all in place and we're like humans trying to get our ball in this little spot, but God's holding the whole thing, and at any moment he can just do this. Didn't you hate it when someone, like your brother or your sister would come by and you just about had that last one and they'd come by and they'd hit it and it would mess them all up and you'd have to start all over again. That's the picture here. God is sovereign over every single scenario in the Bible. Even Hannah's barrenness, as we saw last week. Look at verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but... The wicked shall be cut off in darkness. And he gives us another reason. For not by might shall a man prevail. See, my perspective, if we're going to be involved in transformational worship, my perspective must come from the pattern of God, not the world. I mean, let's, let's be honest for a moment. We are naturally trained by the pattern of the world. The rich are going to rule. The beautiful are going to be the ones that are desired and get all the attention. The powerful are the ones that get everything that they want. That's the pattern of this world. And we're all indoctrinated by it. And so we fall into those patterns and we seek it just like everyone else does. But God's pattern is very different. 
Because you see, our world is broken. We as Christians know that we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. And so it's operating in a way that's not the way God originally intended it to be. Now he's sovereign over it. And he's going to make it right at a certain point. But what Hannah has finally recognized here and what we need to recognize as Christians that periodically in the midst of this broken world where the rich always rule and the powerful always get what they want and the beautiful are always the desired and the rest of us are kind of left in the dark oftentimes is that God breaks into this world periodically with stories, with examples of his pattern. Hannah's was one of them. You see, the one that should have been dejected, the one that should have been set aside, who had no value and was useless in society, is suddenly exalted to a very high place. And Peninnah, who had everything that the world said was great, just disappears off the pages of Scripture. But I don't know if if you're like me, but I, I think many of you are, but we all as humans, we love a good underdog story, don't we? I mean, come on, how many of you here don't love Rocky? Come on, you've seen that movie, Rocky 1 through 24? <laughs> but you laugh, but we watch every one of those stupid things, don't we? Because our, in our heart, we love that underdog. We love it when God breaks into the world and he turns things upside down and suddenly the strong who we think should win doesn't and the weak is exalted. We love Rudy. I mean, how can you not love a movie like Rudy? Right, Miracle on Ice, Karate Kid, I mean, Revenge of the Nerds. How, how, how can you not, I've never seen it, but I've heard it's a great story. See, there's something in our hearts that loves these stories. Because every time God breaks into this world with this, his pattern, the pattern of his redemption, it reminds us and gives us hope. And that's what he does in Hannah's story. You see, if we only worship God when he makes us winners now, then we're no different than the world. Let me say that again. If we only worship God because he makes us winners now, then we are absolutely no different than the pattern of the world that we live in. Hannah got it. Her perspective changed and it transformed her worship. Now let me, let me just address a, a misperception that can often come from this and it's important to recognize that the pattern that is described here in this poem is just that. It's a general pattern that will happen. It's not an absolute principle. God's principle of what's going to happen in the end times is not that, okay, whatever is, I'm going to flip it upside down. And like my, like my daughters, my younger daughters love to say, hey, Dad, it's, uh, we're going to do opposite day today. And so everything's opposite. Dad, I hate you so much, which means they, they really love me. They love to play that. And everything is flipped around. Well, when, when the end of time comes, that's not what God's going to do. He's going to say, okay, it's opposite day now. And if you're rich or beautiful and powerful, then you're automatically the opposite and if you're poor and ugly and, and, and non-powerful, then you're automatically the other side. That's not what Hannah's saying here. She's t- describing a pattern because of how our world works. But the principle 
is given in verse 9. Before we look at it, I want you to understand that the principle is that anyone who places their faith in these things, in their own might or the world's might, they're the ones that are going to experience God's judgment. They're the ones who their circumstances are going to flip upside down. You see, being rich, being powerful, and being beautiful no more makes you guaranteed for doom than being ugly and powerless and poor guarantees that you're saved. That's not how God works. It's what you put your hope in it. And Penina and Hannah show us that. You see, before their circumstances, both of them were lost. Hannah didn't have children. She didn't have any of the things that the world says. Penina had them all, but both of them were lost because both of them were worshiping the things of the world. You can be poor and ugly and powerless and be just as lost as someone who's rich, beautiful, and powerful because you still are placing your hope in having those things. In fact, here's how you can know. If you're angry and bitter and envious and you hate and can't stand people who have all those things in this world, then you're every bit as lost as those people that think those things will save them and yet have them. That's why it's so important to realize Hannah's describing a pattern here, but God gives us the principle in verse 9. Look what he says there. He says, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. What he's saying is that not by our strength, not by what we have in this world, whether it's money, whether it's beauty, whether it's power, or even a lack thereof, those things will not save us. It's not their presence or lack thereof that determines whether we'll be saved. It's where our hope is. And we can hope in those things whether we have them or not. But the general pattern in our world is that we pursue them and try to be saved by them. What would you say is the pattern that best guides your perspective? Are you overly confident and a little bit smug when stocks are going in your favor, when your salary is exactly what you want and you're getting the promotions you want and your family is kicking on all cylinders and all things are going your way and you walk with your head just a little bit higher because you seem to have everything worked out. Or, or maybe you're on the other side. Maybe some of these things have been taken away from you if you lost them. And have you become so despondent are you so broken that suddenly you've begun to believe the lies that you're useless, you have no value, you have no power to do anything of significance because you don't have the stuff that this world says is important. You see, if worship is ever going to transform you, in fact, if you're ever going to experience worship that's truly transforming then one part of it is going to be a perspective that understands the pattern of how God works. Let's look at the last verse. Watch this last verse. It's so cool what God does through Hannah in her poem here. 
Because as we've seen the person of God in the first half of this verse and the pattern of God in the middle of it, we're gonna see those two things come together in the Son of God, in the person whom God was gonna bring this triumph from. So here's my point, and then we'll, we'll take a look at it. My hope comes from the Son of God, not my strength. My hope comes from the Son of God, not my strength. So here's our three things for transformational worship. My strength comes from the person of God, my perspective comes from the pattern of God that he holds all these scenarios in his hand and can change them whenever and however he wants. And lastly, my hope is in the Son of God. How do I know that this is gonna come about? Well, we hope in the Son of God. Now notice in these last two verses, because they both really kind of connect together, they're all future tense verbs. Because Hannah goes to describing what is from her exalting in the Lord and the pattern that is already a true thing to what will be in the future. God will guard the feet of his faithful, but the wicked shall be cut off. He goes on to say, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn or the strength of his anointed. See, this part of Hannah's prayer is considered prophetic. Meaning that in this prayer, the Holy Spirit speaks through her to say something that hadn't even occurred yet. Something that was about to come. Because she speaks of a king that God's strength was going to exalt. An anointed king. But if you remember where the book of 1 Samuel takes place, there aren't any kings in Israel. Israel has never had a king before. They're coming out of the period of the judges where they had these crazy rulers that were kind of all over the place doing all kinds of weird things if you read the book of Judges. And they're moving into a time where God's going to provide a king for them. And here's this little unknown, invisible, insignificant in the world's eyes woman who's writing a poem of praise to God, is saying a poem of praise to God, and God is speaking through her about what is to come. Two things we see in that. One is she's pointing or, or talking about the kingship that Israel was going to experience uh, through her son. God using her son, Samuel, who would anoint the first two kings of Israel. Saul, the, the king that Israel wanted, that was the world's king, and we're going to see them contrasted here as we go. And then David, the king that God had for Israel. But more than just that earthly kingship, that temporal kingship that she was pointing towards, was the true and greater king that she was pointing towards. And what's amazing in that Jesus, who became the king of Israel and is portrayed as that king and the Messiah. This is the first place in the scriptures where anointed means the term Messiah. It's the first time it's used to point towards this coming king, the Messiah, the name that would be given to Jesus Christ. Their true king. And in the person of Jesus Christ, two amazing things happen. One, the person of God, the power of their salvation, came together with the pattern of God that Hannah just got done proclaiming. The person of God and the pattern of God were joined into one person. 
making it possible for you and me to be saved. You see, several years later, many years later, a prophet would write these words about Jesus in a passage that's very well known to us. Isaiah 53. And let me just read a couple verses from it. And watch how the, the person of God and Jesus and the pattern of God comes together in this prophecy that came 700 years before Jesus was even born, but after Samuel or, or Hannah wrote her, her prayer, we see this. It says, Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Meaning it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. He has put him to grief. When his soul, meaning Jesus' soul, makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Now he's talking about us. When Jesus makes this offering for guilt, he'll see his offspring. That's those who trust in him. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, listen to this, shall the righteous one, that's Jesus, my servant, God's servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's us. And he shall bear their iniquities. This prophecy was written 700 years before Jesus was ever born. And the person of God and the pattern of God came together in Jesus Christ. You see, us who had gone astray, us who were the unfaithful ones, us who were the sheep that had gone astray. We deserve God's judgment. And when this passage says that his judgment is gonna thunder to the ends of the earth through this king, we should have been part of that judgment. We who are proud, we who are arrogant, we who had gone our own way and wanted to do things our own way, away from God, deserved that judgment. But God in his grace sent his son and gave his pattern and he brought down his exalted son, his beautiful son, his powerful son, his rich son. He was beaten down, smitten by the father himself as if he had sinned the very sins that you and I committed. Why, why would he do that? Because if he didn't, every one of us would have been judged. You see, God's pattern and his person came together in Jesus Christ. And Jesus was willing to be beaten down and broken so that you and I 
could be lifted up and exalted. And his brokenness leads to our healing. You see, church, until we understand the power of Jesus' gift, until we recognize what true transformational worship is and where our hope must really reside, then we will only and ever ebb up and down with the circumstances of life. But when our heart is anchored in Jesus Christ, when our hope is in him, and it is guaranteed because we see his death, we see his resurrection, and we know what happened to him is what will happen to us. That we will be lifted up as well when we've placed our faith and trust and our hope in him. Church, that changes a person. And that's... That's what Hannah saw. That's what Hannah's brokenness produced in her. Her inability to get what the world said was so important. And God's mercy in keeping it from her until it broke her to a point where she would put her hope in him. Totally changed her life. So let me ask you, what is it that you're worshiping today? What is it that's so important to you that when you have it, man, it's great. And you may not boast, you may not, because you're a Christian, you know, we're, we're humble. But you're, you look down at those that aren't as successful as you and just say, well, I'm blessed. I don't know what's wrong with them, but I'm blessed. That's how our Christian humility comes out. But the fact is, we're still worshiping the things of this world. Or maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum and you don't have what you think you need to be valuable. And your grief and your anger and your bitterness towards others is revealing to you that you worship the same things that those people you can't stand are worshiping. The only difference is you don't have them. Wherever you might find yourself, the only solution is to move your hope from anything in this world and place it on your true king. It will change you and transform.